I'm Christina Raya, and welcome to Breaking Out of Breaking In, a practical filmmaking podcast about taking your creative career into your own hands and making great work that gets seen without playing the Hollywood game. Or at least while changing the rules. Hi, I'm Brie Castellini, your other co-host, and today we're breaking down Directing for TV with guest America Young. Before we dive in, remember that we release bonus content for each episode of this podcast over on patreon.com slash breakingoutpod if you want to support us and get yourself even more info and resources. But without further ado, to continue our four hire series, America, welcome. Please introduce yourself. I'm America Young. I am a director and working in film and television and video games. Yeah, you've done a lot of stuff. I uh, Every time I go to your IMDb to just like pull some credits, it's like I, I notice a new big like internet <laughs> thing you were involved in. Like what a lark. Awesome. I didn't realize that you were a director of until uh, not too long ago. Oh yeah! Oh, I love that one. That one was so much fun. Yeah, I, I've I've uh, I've done some work with Tara before, but yeah. So we're definitely going to yeah. dive into your your crazy big list of stuff. You're also an actress. Obviously, we're talking about directing today, but you you're like a voice actress and a and a traditional actress as well, right? Yeah, I'm kind of all over the map. Um, I the last few years have been mainly focusing on directing and a lot of voiceover stuff. Got it. Very, Very cool. cool. So when you introduce yourself, do you can do you introduce yourself as a director? Do you introduce yourself as an actor? What what's the you know, when you meet someone Honestly, it depends on who I'm talking to. Sure. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Because when you like it, a lots of hyphenates tend to freak people out. I don't mm-hmm. know if you guys have noticed that. Yeah. And so yeah. um, I have found that for the majority of the public, whoever you talk to, it's I'm pretty specific about what I bring up in terms of what I think they'll find the most interesting or what we'd have the most in common about. Makes sense. That, yeah, it's, yeah, it's definitely a conversation that's come up in a lot of these conversations, since obviously, most of us who come from the indie world are not just one thing, by both necessity be. and by freedom. Yeah, yeah, by freedom and necessity. I love yes. that. Yeah, you, you can't be. But I do find, because I also do stunts and stunt coordinating, and I do find that if I meet with a director and they know I'm a director, it makes them really uncomfortable, hmm. because then they feel like I'm going to try to take over for them. So I, I won't mention the directing in that respect. Interesting. And most of the time people don't do their own research, so they don't look it up. Um, when I'm acting, <laughs> I don't mention the directing like, for the same reason. When I'm directing, I don't usually mention the acting. Like it's, I usually try to just, whatever my lane is for that particular project, stick in my lane. Does that tend to be the case for, for other people, multi-hyphenates in your world? I'm curious if men get that. Do male stunt performers mm-hmm. get looked down on because they're also directors? I don't think so. Didn't think so either. And I had a suspicion. (laughs) I mean, to be fair, I'm not in their shoes. And so I'm not experiencing what they're experiencing. But I don't feel like I've witnessed that. And maybe I'm just hypersensitive. (laughs) It's funny we bring that up because I actually had a male stunt coordinator who was trying to kind of direct on one of my films, but he was a white man. So I think that was like its own thing. (laughs) And not the fact that he was a stunt coordinator. Yeah. Yeah. You let me know if you need a stunt coordinator and I will get you someone who will help and be amazing and not try to dig over. All right. Well, we're already veering into a different four hire conversation. So (laughs) bringing us back on the rails. Um, We're here to talk about TV directing and episodic directing, which is a world that I don't think a lot of even directors really think about in logistical terms. So for you, your was your first four hire television project, uh, your blind spot episode? Yep, that's right. So um, obviously, you've, we've just talked about how you've done a lot of like voiceover, you've done a lot of acting, you've done a lot of digital and branded content. What was it that that got you to that first blind spot opportunity? The Warner Brother Directing for TV program okay. is awesome. And I can't sing its praises highly enough because it's nearly impossible circle to break into. Mm-hmm. And uh, but this but this program not only trains you for it, but it guarantees you an episode. Wow. Okay. That's awesome. It has in the past. I know with COVID's really mucked things up for people, but um, the program is run by incredible people. It's taught by brilliant human beings. And then it, it gets you in that door, that first door, which is so hard to do. Yeah, definitely. So what were the, yeah. the application materials like for that program? You had to direct, uh, there's a couple of shorts or a feature that you send, you send what you have, but they have to have screened at certain film festivals. Got it. Which is the pisser. Mm-hmm. I got to tell you, it's the pisser. They have actually a, a great range of film festivals. Like I've seen other programs like this and they're like, you have to screen a Sundance and that's it. And they've actually been incredibly smart and inclusive with the festivals they've included that you could have screened at, like whether it be Outfest or whether it be like they have a whole range of stuff. So that's 
that's cool. But it has to have screened at one of those film festivals. All pieces of work or at least one piece of at work? At least one of them. Got what, it. The, th- the thing you're submitting, at least one thing sure. has. Within the last couple of years is also the timeline. And then you submit like a, a cover letter and then two letters of recommendation. It's not that tricky of an application. Honestly. Yeah, that's not bad. The hardest part is screening in one of those festivals. Yeah. Sure. So you didn't have to do like a, a director state or artistic statement or, or anything like that. Yeah, there's like a letter like from yourself. Got it. Okay. Yeah, and it's it's more like a if I remember correctly, it's more like a letter of intent. You know, like it's mm. more of like a this is why I want to be in this program, um, and then your two letters of recommendation. And I think that was it. That's not bad, all things yeah, considered, especially it's considering and it's the- free. Yeah, yeah a lot awesome. of the fellowship programs are free, definitely. Yeah. I mean, submitting to festivals isn't free and making nope. your short film isn't free, but you know, the the fellowship part of it is free. I'm curious if you, for your letter of intent, did you tailor it to Warner Brothers or was it more about you and your sort of broader hopes? I did tailor it to Warner Brothers because Warner Brothers is making all the shows I'm watching. I mean, like, mm-hmm. I'm like I love comic books. I love sci-fi. I love all that stuff. Um, and so they're already making the shows that I want to be working on. Um, so that was that was a pretty easy uh, thing to to write a letter tailored to them. I'm already, I'm already a mega fan, so that helped a lot. Yeah, yeah. I was going to also ask about the the letter of intent of like what what how did you frame it? What was your personal narrative that meant like you should have me in this program? Was yeah, it just yeah. I'm a big fan of your work? Please let me direct some of it. <laughs> yeah, kind of. I mean, it's it's it's. It, I come from you know I come from stunts, and so being a female director coming from stunts is a huge thing because a lot of their stuff is the heavily into action. Mm-hmm. A lot of their IP that they have, I'm a, you know I'm obsessed with, and so there was all of that. And then I also talked about having come from an indie world, um, having worked on set, having as you said, Brie, done almost everything out of necessity and because of freedom, <laughs> um, more necessity necessity than freedom. And then having the ability to communicate with a number of departments, as opposed to just kind of walking in like, like, you know, um, royalty and not being able to communicate exactly what you want and how you want to the different people who are making it happen. So I think that that was something that really helped was the, uh, the knowledge of how it all works. Yeah, definitely. And that's, that's also great to know. Did you have like a pick of what shows you could possibly direct on? Was it like a, you rank, you know, this is my first first pick this is my second pick how did the actual like matchmaking work they'll they so you you do your first submission and then if you get selected you go in for an interview and then they kind of get a vibe like a feel for your vibe and I was I was pretty clear about the things that I knew that wasn't my speed you know there's there's certain shows where I was like that's probably not my bag like Mm -hmm. you know it's it's probably not where you want me so I made it pretty clear about like what I where I thought but I didn't think of what I didn't list specific shows although um that's not true. I listed I listed a range of shows, but they weren't specifically Warner Brothers shows. Got just it. to show them like what I liked and what kind of stuff I'd like to do. But I tried to be, but here's the interesting thing is I tried to be as absolutely as specific as possible. Like I didn't want to just be like, I'll take anything. Right. Although part of me inside was screaming, I'll take anything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, but part, but I was like, nope, I'm going to be specific. I'm going to be like, this is who I am. I'm the, I'm, I'm your action girl. Like I'm going to be the person who can handle this stuff. No problem. The drama, that kind of stuff. And then I got the call that I didn't get in because they didn't have a show that had an opening that, and it was a show when I was willing to take on a, a, a new person that fit what I said. So then there was that point of me that went, well, fuck, <laughs> like, why was I so specific? And then two weeks after that, I got a call and they said, blind spot just got picked up. You were the first person we thought of. And uh, Martin is willing to give you a, a slot. Martin Garrow is wow. a showrunner who's like amazing and I will be forever grateful to. And so then I was like, okay, so it did pay off to be specific because then when the right job came up, I was the first person they thought of because they were like, this is the girl, right? Right. Yeah, I think that's a good lesson because I think all Very of us good. have that impulse of like, I'll do whatever you want. I will yeah. become any human that you need. But then yeah. that does make it hard to be thought of for the things that you actually want to be doing. Yeah, there's something about sticking yourself in a box when you first start so that everybody knows that that's your box and you're the go-to person for that box. And then once you've established enough credits and experience and clout, then you would start working on breaking out of that box. But there is something about like, oh, take anything versus I am this person. When you need this, I am the best person you can call for this. And then they'll remember you because you were that person. So it was terrifying and Mm -hmm. gut-wrenching at first, but ultimately I'm really glad I did it. 
Yeah, no, it sounds like it paid off. And I mean, I'm just personally a huge fan of Blind Spot, so oh, hell yeah. It's such a good it's, show. It's so, it really took me by surprise. They used to shoot on the lot that I went to grad school on because I went to school on the lot of Steiner Studios. Oh, yeah. I love Blind Spot, and I'm, I'm just very excited that you got to work on it. So oh, from, I am too. It was awesome. <laughs> from Blind Spot, then, um, you know, coming out of the program, getting your guaranteed slot on Blind Spot, uh, how did you get the, the next gig? Was it networking? Was it, you know, the next gig I actually interviewed? inadvertently got from the workshop as well. Okay. Which was awesome. <laughs> There's no other word to describe it. Because because they say the only thing harder than getting your first episode is getting your second episode. Because <laughs> they keep moving that bar. Mm-hmm, they keep yeah. doing it. They keep moving that bar. And so I actually came out of the workshop, thank God, with both episodes. And the the second episode was the legacies episode, which was such an unbelievable blast to shoot on. I mean, that show is just so bananas in the best possible way. And I like getting to work with witches and werewolves and vampires. I love the show Vampire Diaries. Like I watched that show, the entire show. I did too. Yeah. And the originals, <laughs> like right? Recently, yeah. 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 It's so good. It's mm-hmm. so good. And um, so having already been like loving the show and the world that it's set in and then getting to work in it was great. And there was a couple of points where... I'd be talking to Matt Davis, who plays Alaric, who's been playing this role for 15 years now. Yeah, it... across three different shows. Yeah, it's wow. ridiculous. <laughs> and I made some reference to some episode early on in Vampire Diaries. And he was like, oh, you've done the research. You've done the work. And I was like, yeah, it was work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a total fangirl. Um... <laughs> That's funny. Uh, but yeah, that was a blast. And so then, and then I got to work in the whole Julie Pleck world and she creates, I mean, she just creates a great work environment and a great world and everybody who's in it is awesome. And so that was really cool. And so is the Julie Pleck world, how you ended up on Roswell because Karina yeah. Aldi McKenzie was also in Vampire Diaries land. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I don't know if it was directly because of Karina, because there was kind of a transfer of power at some point in there, but definitely being in that world that I think that's where that, that how that happened. There's a lot of trading of baseball cards, I think, when you find somebody that you like. So that was great to get that call. That's amazing. So let's talk money. How on a television set do you get paid as a director? Lump sum, daily rate? What does that look like? You, you get a contract based on a certain number of days. There is a DGA standard, depending on whether you're doing an hour long show or whether you're doing a half hour long show and whether you're doing a sitcom show. My numbers might be a little skewed simply because by the time I get it, it's gone through the agents and all of that. Sure. But I think the general idea is for an hour long show, it's 49,000. And then for a half hour show, I believe it's 32,000. This is all searchable. It's all on the DGA mm-hmm. rate card. And that's per um, episode, right? That's and that's just, and that's per episode. Got it. And then if you go into OT or if there's extra days that get added on, you get added on to that. And that usually includes uh, eight days of prep, eight days of shooting and four days of post. Okay. Yeah. I was going to ask if like pre and post were con- included in that rate. So that's and yeah. so that's like they set a st- standard of like these are the expected days and then anything over that expected days you get overtime for. Is that yeah. kind of how it works? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the crazy thing is, is it doesn't matter how many episodes you've done, you, that's it. That's a flat rate. The only thing that I, from what I understand, because I'm still learning to navigate these contracts myself, the only director that gets to have a quote based on experience and credits is if you're doing sitcoms. And so is that like, is that where it fluctuates based on how many episodes of a sitcom you've directed? That's what I understand. Yeah. Interesting. And so what I, at this point, what is considered a sitcom half hour comedy? Or something no. more specific than that? Well, live studio audience. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. Are there enough of those shows still happening? I guess so. <laughs> That's I guess such I... a good question. I guess so. Yeah, because I just talked to somebody who was, who was just working on on a few different ones. Okay. Um, and, and I think it also has to do, even if there's not a live studio audience because of the whole COVID of it, mm-hmm. it's also the format in which it's shot, which is like you Multi-tail. get together... Yeah, there's a there's a table read, there's a rehearsal, and you shoot it all in one day, and you're home by five. Like it's mm-hmm. it's a very specific schedule, as opposed to even single camera half hour. They have more grueling shoot days. Sure, right. You know, um, they still have full days, but it's all in studio sets, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I mean, and it, and for all intents and purposes, and again, I don't I don't know, I haven't done it, but it seems like the sitcom stuff is the stuff that's like the least exhausting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> 
you know, because um, yeah. you're not shooting 12 hour days and um, it's not tons of coverage and there's kind of a formula, a little bit more of a formula to it, but I'm speaking from ignorance because I've never actually directed one. So I might mm-hmm. be way wrong. <laughs> you might come out of your first sitcom directing day and be like, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> it's too much. <laughs> Shit, that was hard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you never know, man. There's gotta be a reason. I try to, I, I like to think that there's a reason for it, but in any case, I like the dramas. So uh, at the point, at what point ahead of starting your eight days of prep, um, are you actually officially brought on board? Like how much notice do you have before you, an episode gets thrown your way? It depends. Sometimes you can be booked out six months in advance. Sometimes it's like three or four months. Sometimes, especially with COVID, if they're scrambling, they'll be like, what are you doing tomorrow? got that call last week. Uh, so you, you don't, you don't ever really know, but usually it's, it's usually, it's a little bit different also with streamers, but usually it's like, okay, we've got our pickup. Now we got to start booking out our directors and then they'll try to fill their entire slate of directors at that moment. So whether that's in March and then they're filling it out for 22 episodes or whether that's in August and then they start filming in a month and that's for, you know, it, it, that varies a little bit. So, so from what I understand, this is not, there's no normal schedule anymore. It used to be sure. like in March, you get your, your bookings for the year, but now with streamers and all of that, that's a little bit up, but yeah, probably about six months, but I'm leaving next week for a show and I still haven't been given my dates. Oh, wow. Like, wow. I've got, been given a loose, like thing buffer and you're supposed to plan whenever they give you those dates, four days buffer on either side that sure. that's ex- expected in your contract, not booking. So, but from what I understand from people who have been working on the show, there's been some delays because of the weather and whatever. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if I'll be leaving on the dates they told me or whether I'll be leaving sooner or later. And is that stuff that like production pays for? They pay for your flight and lodgings? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they, and they have you get tested ahead of time. Now with COVID, you get paid sure. to get tested. Um, okay. They pay for your, your flight. They pay for your lodging. And then uh, you get per diem on top of it. Oh, nice. That's yeah. That's great to know. So is does do you tend to at this rate have like interviews before you're booked as a director or at this rate is it more about like oh we we recommend or already know America we should have her on something I think she'd be good for episode 5 like what is, what is that like selection process look like on your end? On shows I've been on before, I just get the call, which is okay. awesome. But for new shows, there's still always going to be interviews. I'm still new enough that, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm going into my 10th episode. So I'm still new enough that I'm, I'm kind of an unknown entity. What I've been told is the fact that I've been back to several shows several times will start being in lieu of an interview. Okay. Because it's proof that people want you back and yeah. find you good enough to work with multiple times. Absolutely. Absolutely. So they'll be able to look that that in my resume or my agent will mention that I've been back to every show I've worked on. And then they'll be like, oh, okay. So then we probably don't need to meet with her. So, but the, and then the meetings from what I understand will be more about shows that are more stylistic sure. or more specific or more artistic or less artistic or, you know, more mm-hmm. comedy. And if I haven't done a lot of comedy. So the only meetings then will come from shows that are different than what I've done. So for the time being, then, like, do you what what information do you have ahead of time? Do you have to prepare like a deck? You know, are you pitching them a concept? Like what is what's the actual material sort of exchanging hands so they they feel comfortable with you? For television, it's a conversation. Got it. Okay. Yeah, because you're not really given a script ahead of time. Okay, so I met on a I met on the show Cobra Kai. And I am a crazy fan of that show. And it was, it was like my, for my, so my conversation that I talked about there is the fact that I was basically trained by Crease because I'm a martial artist. And the guy who trained me is Crease, like maybe more evil than Crease. And so <laughs> I, I started that interview with, when I watched Karate Kid when I was a kid, I was Daniel LaRusso all the way. Then I actually went and got trained by somebody who's very similar to John Crease, went back and watched the movie and realized Johnny was the far superior martial artist and was hundred percent robbed. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, I think you belong on our show. Um, so, so that, so like a lot of the times, and I've been so lucky that I've only really met on shows that I'm actually genuinely love and genuine fans of. And so what my interviews are just all the things I love about the show and it's genuine. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen if I'm ever put in a situation where I'm interviewing a show that I don't like. Mm-hmm. What about a show that's just not out yet? Like, have you had that experience, like yeah. coming in on season one of something? Yeah. Yeah, I have. And then it's just talking about what they see as the show, um, things that I've done that might be the same, asking me a bit about, about my background and how I, Kung Fu, I worked, I did an episode four on that. 
And the show hadn't come out yet at that point. And so that's what the conversation was, is just like, this is where we're headed for it. What are your views on this? What are this? And coming from the stunt background, again, this is a perfect place where it was like, oh, being known as that girl Mm -hmm. and that's who she is, is perfect for this show. But so far I've been really lucky. And basically I just fangirl out on them. (laughs) Do your research if it doesn't come by honestly, but if it comes by honestly, it's even easier. Yeah, do your research for sure. And even if you don't like the show, I guess find something you do like about it, you know, because you have to like the show you're going to work on. They have to think you like the show you're going to work on, (laughs) you know, because you have to immerse yourself in that world. Mm -hmm. And so many times directors don't. So many times directors don't even watch the show and they just, they go in and they kind of, they pull it off somehow, you know? Um, So that's just my way of doing it. Maybe once I'm in like episode 50 or 60, I might be like, F that you know like I'm just gonna show up (laughs) but right now I'm in a place where I really want to love the show so that I can really get into it I have a question about sort of pilots versus a later episode as a director do you find like how do you kind of find your way into something that's already existing so it's it's been going on the characters are established the actors are playing them how they play them so you don't quite have quite as much of like the co-creation that you maybe would have in a pilot scenario how do you navigate that difference as a director you mean in terms of like how do you still tell the story yeah and like make it your own in a way you're not really supposed to make it your own right you're supposed to do the best possible version of what they've established Mm -hmm. and that in of itself is the most fun challenge to be quite honest because like there's something awesome about creating a world and there's something awesome about setting the tone and setting the looks and setting the feel and setting all of that stuff in terms of like what you would do on a pilot mm-hmm. or in a feature. But there's also a lot of like getting the momentum up and going and a lot of over communication about all of that. And so on the flip side, just as an exercise in creativity to walk into a, a place that's pretty rigid in their structure, they've already mm-hmm. set up the colors, the lighting, the performances, all the other stuff, and then find a way to navigate within that in a way that's creatively fulfilling is a whole nother challenge. And it's really, really fun. And in a way it's like a relief. Like there's something very freeing about the fact that somebody else has already set this stuff for you and you just get to show up in the world and play in it. That's very cool. There's something really, really fun about that. Sometimes it gets frustrating. Sometimes you're like, really? That's what you chose to color correct it? Really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, but for the most part, it, there's something so amazing about it. And, you know, having come from indie film where I spend three years on post on a feature mm-hmm. and then like you go to a TV show and you have four days. Right. Again, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can't even fathom that turnaround. And I'm mostly in short form stuff, like cannot compute. That's ridiculous. <laughs> do you have any opportunities to to put your own creative spin license on it? Like, do you have an America Young thing that, you know, all of your episodes have that's uniquely yours? Um, Not necessarily. If there's like, there's certain in certain situations, like if, if there's a flashback, I like to like to film them a certain way. Like mm-hmm. if there's, um, like I, I shot my first love scene recently in an episode and I never done it before. So I shot it like a fight scene. Um, <laughs> what does that mean? Like the way I, the way I did the choreography, the way I shot the pieces, like the, the, the ins and the outs of the movement in the camera. And it, it ended up working. It came across incredibly passionate, but like, uh, so maybe that's how I'll shoot my, my love scenes from here on out. Um, yeah, I don't really, in, in my films, I, there's, I think there's a thing that's more my vibe, you know, um, in the shows it's, I, I do try to just honor what they have mm-hmm. and I tried to elevate maybe their fight sequences and the way those are filmed if there's a way like the coordinators on the shows I've worked with so far are awesome and so getting to work with them and rehearse with them and the stunt team and then do that um and also just performances I tend to bring a lot more humor to stuff than maybe is written but overall it's I love the challenge of making sure that I'm within the world you know right totally. so when yeah. you're doing an interview are you focused then more on Kind of like how you are on set and how you are working with people and running things yeah. as opposed to like your creative eye and what is uniquely you on the yeah, screen. A hundred percent. Yeah. And, and, and the creative eye comes up when you're acknowledging something they've done creatively, because then it shows that you get what they're doing. 
um, which I think is really important because it's their baby ultimately that they're handing over. And it's such a weird thing. I mean, if I'm going to be honest, the structure of television makes no sense. Like the one person who is trading in and out each episode is the person with all the creative decisions yeah. and all the yeah. creative lead. Like, I, I don't quite understand why it is the way it is. I'm thrilled yeah, why, it is. Why they don't have a director's room the same way they have a writer's room. Yeah, <laughs> right? exactly. And I don't know if that's a cost thing or or what that is. Yeah, or whether they ha- should have like three directors for the entire season and then, mm-hmm. or they're trying to prevent burnout. Like, I... I'm not sure. It doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> yeah. well, and that, I'm glad you brought that up because that was what I was going to ask next. Is yeah. What is your approach when it's your first time on a show coming in and being like, hi, I'm in charge now. All people who have worked together consistently for possibly yeah. years. <laughs> for years. I mean, on on like on Legacies, that camera crew has been together since Vampire Diaries. Oh, my gosh. I mean, they are a brilliantly well-oiled machine. The camera crew on Blindspot have been together through the following and damages I think so like that crew was amazing to watch like it's pure poetry to see these people who've been working together for so long yeah so you know when I come in I just I just kind of listen and observe um I have my ideas I've already broken on the script I have an idea of everything that I want but especially on a new show I just observe because each each family is a dysfunctional family in its own right. And <laughs> you just, you just don't know, you know, which is the, uh, which is the grandfather you avoid, which is the the cousin that's your best friend that will help you out and tell you how it really goes. Like you, you, you just figuring it out as you go. Mm-hmm. And some shows can be, I've been lucky that this hasn't happened to me, but, but I've, I talked to other friends who are directors and some shows are so crazy dysfunctional that like, it's just awful. And there's just, you're just, counting the days till you're done. And then some shows, you know, like the legacies or the blind spot where they've been working together for so long that it's just beautifully well-oiled machine, you know, but yeah, it's, it's definitely weird the first couple of days. And I, and I also, I also don't know if this is real or if this is something I'm putting on myself, but I don't know if I, I expect that they're waiting for me to prove myself. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't have a hundred episodes. I sound like a Disney princess you know, like, and like, like Barbie, which and, you, and you, I sound like Barbie. Quite a bit. <laughs> right. Isn't that a coincidence? Hmm. Um, I don't know where I got that from. I don't know where I got that. But uh, I, there's a, that, that's their voice in my head. That's like, they don't believe in you yet. You know, you're not the usual. And I also approach things a little bit differently. And again, I, the weird thing about being a director in television is you never get to see other directors in television. I've gotten to shadow a couple, but I don't, you don't actually get to see, you only hear what the crew tells you that the last guy did. Right. (laughs) But it's my understanding that they're used to somebody coming in, taking up space, changing the dynamic to fit around them because they have a vision and that's the way that they want it to go. As opposed to what I do, which I come in and I listen for the first day or two and try to suss out what the relationships are so I can work within, you know, what they already have. Mm -hmm. And so I think I think that terrifies them because that's not what their idea of a leader is. Mm. Their idea of a leader is somebody who is unbending and unyielding and takes up space and doesn't listen because unfortunately that's what our leaders have been for so long. Mm. And I genuinely don't think that's the best way to lead. You have to have a vision. You have to be clear. You have to be specific. You have to be constantly moving everything towards an end point. But if you listen to the brilliant people around you, that can only make everything better. But that's not what we're used to. And so I think it scares people when it looks different. And so again, this might be not something that's happening. It might be just something that I'm putting out there with my own self-doubts and stuff. But usually I have found by the time, like the first day of shooting, hopefully sooner, they go, okay, this is good. This is gonna be good, you know? But yeah, I have that. For the longest time, I specifically didn't tell anybody about Barbie. And then this is one of my favorite stories. I was on a set and I had this big guy come up to me. He's like six foot four, covered in tats, like very intimidating. And he's like, I thought your voice seemed familiar. (laughs) And I went, what? (laughs) And he goes, Barbie, it's on my house. It plays at my house 24-7. And I'm thinking to myself, please have a child. Please have a child. (laughs) 
<laughs> and then he just melts it and he goes, my six-year-old daughter loves you and loves it and everything about it. And it's so great. And I said, call her, let's call her right now. And we, we, I talked to her and we had a whole conversation. And then that was when I realized, like, there's that story. I don't know if you guys have heard it about um, uh, Brando and how he wouldn't talk to Frank Oz. Like he wouldn't take direction mm-hmm. from Frank Oz because yeah. he kept calling him his biggie. Mm-hmm. So that's what I was worried was going to happen is that people are like, I'm not talking to Barbie. Like that. <laughs> and so, I, but I found that that's not the case and it, it's, it's fine now. But at first, like there's this idea of like fitting into what you think that they want to see. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you're coming in and you're not, you know, taking up space and you're also Barbie, there's, there's <laughs> unfortunately a lot of people that are going to make snap judgments that are unfair, sure. but I'm glad it sounds like that's not the case because yeah, it hasn't been. Yeah. That, you know, it's a job and it clearly makes a lot of people happy. How can anyone judge that? They do though. They do. Mm-hmm. But thankfully, not really. Thankfully, it's been it's been a really good thing. And, it, and I have also found that it's helped with actors that that I do do acting and that I do, you know, that I'm currently working as one because we have a shorthand. But then like some of the younger kids I even work with are, are fans of Barbie. And so that's a really fun. Well, that's, that's so a cool. really fun thing. Yeah. So you're you're yeah. a colleague as well as a leader. Yeah, that's the way of putting it. I like that. Very cool. Yeah, I found that too. I have only acted like a couple of times, but truly directors, the best advice I can give you is act once or twice. You will have a whole new appreciation for what it takes and what what you want to hear at the end of a take. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Because that's everything, right? Like at the end of the take, what do you want to hear? And then how to communicate what you want to see as the director. Definitely take acting classes. Totally. 100%. So did you have any like misconceptions going into uh, episodic directing that, you know, turned out to be totally different from what you expected? The program prepared us really well for it. What about before the program? Was there anything that like, as you were sending in your application, did you have any, any thoughts in your head, any ideals of what something was going to be that turned out? No, that's not how it's like at all. The thing that I did like about it is that it reminded me that no matter how much money you have and how long you have been on the air, the same shit happens and you're constantly putting out the same fucking fires. <laughs> mm. um, and that actually, that actually made me feel more at home. That, that, that was a good feeling to know that everything we're doing, no matter what level you're doing it at is preparing you. So there's that. I, I also, you know what, there was one thing I was constantly surprised at how many times a crew member would say to me, you're so prepared. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shouldn't be something that you need to comment on. That's disturbing. I guess that was one thing that surprised me. I figured it's so, so, so hard to get these jobs Mm -hmm. that like you just have to be so prepared and work so hard to keep them. Yeah. But apparently not. Like they would tell me a story about a guy who would who would fall asleep in the sprinter van between takes. Oh my god! And they couldn't find him, and he'd forget forget to say cut because he was on his phone. Oh my god! But his episode turned out great because the crew was phenomenal and pulled it together. And then he has continued to work. Mm, I don't have a name. I don't know who it was. It was just this guy. But um, you you hear stories like that, and you're like, wow. You worked really hard to keep me out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That guy. But uh, those are the two things is I thought that um, some, I thought some things would be different production wise, but it's not, it's exactly the same because humans are humans. And then also how prepared, like, I mean, being prepared is awesome and it should be the norm, but it's not apparently. Do writers tend to, of the episodes that you're directing tend to be on set? Yeah. I know it depends on the show. Okay. So what does that collaboration look like when, when they're on set? I love it. I, they have the insight to the entire show. They're in the writer's room. They know what's coming. They know what happened. They know what's important. They've thought about it. They've daydreamed about it. They've, you know, and and I've been lucky that all the writers I've worked with so far have just been truly awesome. Uh, so I, I love having them by my side and, and we talk about things and we figure out different ideas and we don't always agree you know, but I always honor if they have a suggestion or something, you know, even if I don't agree with it, I'll, I'll try it and see how it goes. And sometimes I'm wonderfully surprised. And, but like, I, I think it's a great collaboration. I'm surprised that, that it doesn't happen on features. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised that writers aren't invited on features because I, I can't imagine a better collaboration than the person who created the world. Yeah. 
Absolutely. TV is definitely the writer's medium. Yeah. Features mm-hmm. are definitely the director's. So yeah. is the writer there during prep week or are they just there for set days? They're there for prep okay. or they're or, or like so prep recently has been different because of Zoom. So they're sure. either there mm-hmm. or they're on the Zoom and then fly out for the actual shoot. But they're in on all the calls and they, you know, it's, it's a great collaboration. A lot of the times they defer to the director, but if they have a specific thought or something, they'll weigh in and same thing with casting. It's a really nice collaboration. Yeah. I was going to ask about casting. Obviously when with most TV shows, predominantly you're, you're working with the actors of the show, but do you have any say over casting for like walk-ons and things like that? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Again, it's it's the collaborative process, but you get sent all the tapes and you get to weigh in and uh, say why you like to, you know, and then what I love to do is uh, be part of the, like, if there's if there's any debate, have a callback and then be part of the callback and direct the actors in the callback. Because oh, nice. having been in on all, all the conversations, I already know what we actually need, you know, and sometimes with TV, it moves so fast that the casting director isn't always sent the most up-to-date script or isn't sent the most up-to-date breakdown. And so sometimes there's a disconnect between that by no one's fault. But if I'm able to you know, get involved in the in the callback, then I'm able to, you know, bring them closer to what we actually need it to be. And, but yeah, it's, it, that's, I love that process. And I love seeing all the different actors and the different ways that come in and getting to work with them in that. And then I think if it's like a, a reoccurring or a major guest star, I maybe have less say in it. Sure. You know, because it's, it's going to be a massive runners. character. Yeah. Right. Showrunner usually weighs in no matter what, but um, yeah, that's, that's the thing on the, but that was a cool thing. I, I directed that a pilot for Apple TV and November and um, getting to be part of the casting of the series regulars and the entire cast was just such a blast. That is cool. So that's really cool. in directing a pilot, what was like, what was the process like for you of essentially setting the template that every other director after you is going to have to follow? Like what, how did that change how you approached that job, how you, you know, worked with the team as it was coming together? Like, what was that from a craft perspective like? I loved it. Um, it was really fun to get to set that tone after doing a few episodes where I didn't. And then in terms of, like, I just kind of put together a Bible, a little, I put, put together a lookbook and uh, a list of rules that we've established. Whenever they're on their cell phones, camera shifts over, text is on screen. Whenever we're in the magic place, it's these color tones. Whenever we're in a non-magic place, it's these color tones, that kind of stuff. Well, that's really fun. Yeah. Trying to set, yeah, trying to set some rules and then still leave room for other directors to collaborate and bring in their own stuff. So is that standard that you get like a sheet of rules from previous directors if they're as a show that has an aesthetic that's that concrete sometimes like sometimes you just have to watch the show okay on something like legacies they put together a brilliant i had never seen another show do this i think it's because it's so much work but they put together a brilliant reel narrated by julie talking about what she likes what she doesn't like these aesthetics these moments how to embrace these types of scenes versus these types of scenes and it was awesome the producer Lauren over there did that. And it was, it was brilliant. Like it, it was so helpful. Otherwise you just watch the show, you know, and sometimes you'll ask them, what's your favorite like showrunner? What's your favorite episodes? So that you know, like which director did it right? Which director didn't. And then on something, again, something like legacies where there's a thousand rules, you just ask as you go. Mm-hmm. How do we, how do we do the vamping again? Is she, is she, can she touch that or not touch this? And where is she getting her power? And mm-hmm. she didn't siphon, but she has a spell. So she should siphon and touch. Like you ask those mm-hmm. kind of questions as you go. Again, it helps to be a fan of the show to know <laughs> that like, you know, they're a Gemini witch and therefore they get, you know, blah, 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 blah. So it's a, there's a lot of questions that you have to ask. And then you just watch the show a lot. One of the things that I was told, which I thought was great advice is watch the show at the sound off mm. um, because then you're not really getting caught up in the story and you're watching how they cover different things and different angles and, and things like that specifically. So I found that very helpful because otherwise I get caught up in the show, especially if I'm a fan of it. Right. <laughs> totally. Uh, what were some other pieces of advice that you got from the the original Warner Brothers fellowship that that they they set you out into the world with? What what pearls of wisdom can you can you share? They helped us figure out how to most efficiently block a scene, um, how to shoot the scene, how to because 
when you're dealing with film, you have a lot more time and the luxury of time. So you don't necessarily have to worry about the efficiency of blocking. That was one thing that they went over, which was so unbelievably helpful. Um, and it's interesting how much we overcomplicate our blocking when it doesn't have to be something, right. but then how to keep it interesting. So it's not just seven people in a line, you sure. know, mm-hmm. um, which happens quite a bit sometimes. What else did they talk about? They just talked about how to just do the different personalities we would come across and how to manage mm-hmm. them and how to, how to, and how to talk about about, uh, how to deal with an actor who's been doing this for 15, 20 years and a brand new actor. And the fact that like each actor you will have to talk to in a different way because each person, and not even just actor, each artist on set, which is your DP, which is your production designer. There's so many artists and there's so much of our job if you're doing a good job as a director is to figure out the best way to speak to them in a way that's collaborative and um, clear you know, um, and, and is into their best. Cause you can either come in and take up the space and make everybody conform to you, or you can try to figure out how to make the unit work as best as possible together. So there's like exercises and stuff like that on that. And the two directors, uh, Mary Lou Belly and Bethany Rooney have directed like 500 episodes of television between the two of them, something yeah. unbelievable. And they are phenomenal and they're so good at their job. And they also wrote a book called director tells the story. Mm. And it's great. Director tells the story. Yeah. It's a really great book. I've read it a few times. And each time I read it, I'm like, oh, shit, that's good. Yeah, it's a good book. I read that in college. Have you ever had to turn down an offer? And obviously, without going into huge details, like, do you mind telling us what went into that? I turned down an offer for a feature recently. Okay. It was in television. But uh, and it was just because the I, I didn't want to make that movie. <laughs> you know, like, I, I feel like we have a responsibility in the entertainment because we have such a loud megaphone to tell stories that should be told and not tell stories that have already been told a million times um, and about horrible humans. So Mm. like that, that was something that I turned down recently in terms of like TV. The only time has been because of scheduling conflicts. Sure. There hasn't been anything juicy, not yet. (laughs) Sure. 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 Do you think that you would have turned down that feature position five years ago? No. Oh, okay. That's, that's awesome. Cause yeah. I, we were kind of talking, I think before we started recording and maybe a little bit after about sort of the, the complicated nature of like, you know, being everything and just like, Hey, it's, this is a competitive industry. You kind of got to take what you can get, but then trying to still maintain a soul. Like how, what uh, clearly you have uh, your, your boundaries that are very well in place, but like, how has that been something that you have experienced as an actor as a stunt person as a director in navigating the like the ethics of it all it's really hard it's really hard because you're terrified you'll never work again you know five years ago I probably would have said yes to this movie it was fully funded it had some huge names attached and um I would have been like well I'll deal with it and I'll make it work but I'm I I don't know, in the last few years, I just realized that like, I, I need to be crazy about what I'm making, especially with a feature where you're going to be putting so much time and energy into it and post for years and stuff. Mm-hmm. And the people I'm working with, I, it needs to be people I, I trust and that I care about first and foremost, even before the content, because you go to war. I mean, it's a battle. If you're, you're, it's a major survival on a desert Island. So you need to pick your people and your story carefully. As an actor, I think it's even harder because you have no control over the content, right? And so I've, I've talked to, I was talking to a friend of mine recently who received a script for a video game that they had um, booked and the video game was so racist mm-hmm. that he was like, I can't do this. And it was so hard because it was a main character in a video game. And he was just like, I'm so offended. And I can only imagine what other people are going to feel. You know, so he turned it down. So it's, but, but that was hard. It was the first thing that he had booked in two years with the pandemic and blah, blah, blah. And I don't, it's really hard, but, but ultimately you have to live with yourself, you know, and you have to, and if it's like a one day job, maybe, I don't know, but if it's like years upon years that you're committing to project, they're putting your essence into, I don't know. It's, it's something you really have to define for yourself. And, and the thing that I have found is it's better if you define it before it's offered to you. So like on a sunny afternoon, sitting out in the park in Los Angeles, thinking about what's my line in the sand, you know, ahead mm-hmm. of time. And then that way, when you're actually approached with the situation, you've already thought about it. 
and you've already objectively thought about it as opposed to what's presented in front of you. And I think that really helps. That's really good. Yeah, that's the best way to handle it, I think, because it's so hard to say no. Totally. Yeah. In terms of balancing paid work with passion projects, do you have any advice there? And have you encountered any situations where you have had to sacrifice passion projects in order to make the paid work take priority? Yeah, I, I think it's really important to have that balance. I, they, the struggling artist, I think, is a myth. You need to be able to pay your bills to have a free creative mind. Yeah. And there are there have been times. There's this proof of concept short that I've been wanting to shoot for like a year now. And I've had to keep pushing it partially because of COVID, but partially because the paid jobs are coming up. I think the best thing to do, though, is, again, on a clear, sunny day, set out your schedule. I want to make this now. And then stick to that even if a paid gig comes up, if you're okay financially at that point, like if you're not struggling, if you're already struggling, then you have to take the paid gig, but commit to commit to it ahead of time. And that and, and, and ahead of time, set the limit in terms of what is going to be enough of a paid gig to make you move on. So if this is something that's like one of the things that I one of my rules that I've started is if I'm going to take a job, it's got to do two of the following three things. It's got to feed my me and my family. I get to hire people I love. It's a story that I desperately need to tell. So any two of that three combination to me has really helped clarify. So if I get a job that doesn't pay that much, it's a shitty job and it's not people I want to work with. Nope. Mm-hmm. If I get a job that doesn't pay anything, but it's the people I love most in the world and it's a great story or a story that I think needs to be told. Yeah. I'll do that. If it's a job that pays, great. It's a shitty story, but I get to hire people I love. Great. Worth it. We'll struggle through it, (laughs) you know? So, so again, setting those boundaries ahead of time before you're in the situation just definitely helps with the clarity of when, when you're faced with it. That's great. Yeah. I love that too. So um, this my my penultimate question was going to be about all of the different ways that people find themselves directing episodic television. So obviously your path of breaking in was going through the directing fellowship from colleagues of yours that you know. Do you have like do you know how other people are are making it in? What are what are the common paths that you've seen to make it to episodic director? Ava Lorne is doing amazing stuff with her Queen Sugar. She is giving episodes to first-time directors, specifically women and people of color, which is just amazing. I mean, like talk about putting your money where your mouth is. That and the fellowships are kind of the only thing I'm seeing. Like I'll talk to other people who've been around for a while and they found, they came in through producing. I guess that's not true. They came in through producing, writers start to direct, uh, first ADs start to direct, cinematographers start to direct and some coordinators kind of work their way up into directing that those are the different ways I'm seeing it. All of the ones I just listed, they're already in the room. Sure. You know, they're already stunt coordinating the TV show. They're already the DP on the TV show. They're already the first AG on the TV show. So they're already in the room in terms of like true outsider getting their way in. It's through Ava or these programs, you know? And I think she's so remarkable for doing more for, for new directors of, of um, unheard voices than like most of these programs are doing. I think she's awesome. Hopefully there will be more people like her in the future because, yeah. you know, yeah. Ava can't, can't do this whole she, industry no, by herself. It's not fair for her to do no. it the whole, like that's not, it's not fair to ask. No. She's doing it, but it's not fair to ask. Yeah. Those are the main things. So people will work their way up through their respective departments and then eventually get promoted to it, or they'll do the fellowships. I'm sure there's other ways. I did hear there was somebody who was talking recently about that they had done a movie that did really well in the festival circuit. And then they started getting calls, but their movie was very specific aesthetic. And so that that's why they started getting calls to do that in that regard. Getting shows that match that aesthetic. Yeah. Makes yeah. sense. Yeah. I mean, like the great, which I'm loving right now, wasn't that done by the guy who did the favorite? Think so. Yeah. It. I mean, if not, then there's some plagiarism going on. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, it was. <laughs> yeah. So it, that those are the main ways. I think it's 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 a well guarded job. It's an awesome job. I mean, I understand why people want to protect it. Totally. But yeah, well, a thing that we try to do on this podcast is showcase like there's not a single path, you know, you don't mm-hmm. get a degree in this. Oh, I guess we didn't ask you, did you go to film school? I almost went to med school. Does that count? Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so you did, you did you go straight into just like acting and indie stuff? Mm-hmm. Got it. 
and just being on every set I possibly could for years. That's awesome. That's yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, so last question. Uh, you are a co-founder, co-runner of yeah, a, a co-founder of an organization called the Chimera Project. So tell us about that and what works you guys do. Well, actually, it's a great segue from what we were just talking about. Yes. Um, so the Chimera Project is a champion for uh, women filmmakers and non-binary filmmakers. And we have a bunch of different programs to help help women get those chances. You know, there's that saying that men are hired on potential and women are hired on accomplishment, but it's nearly impossible for women to get those accomplishments before actually getting to start. So we hope to help that. We have finishing funds, which we're about to open up for. People can apply to finishing funds in their shorts and their features. We have um, workshops on action and so women know how to direct action and VFX and all these other things to, to educate. Um, we also just completed our mentorship program in which we paired uh, six mentees with phenomenal mentors that I can't even believe. And it just worked out so well. One of them just got flown out to Georgia to direct a, a something for Passion Flicks. And it just, there's just been a wonderful, wonderful opportunities that we're really, really proud of. So finishing funds happening soon, starting in April, I think. Yeah, we'll put that stuff in the episode notes for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Don't, don't worry, everyone. You will be able to click links to all of this if you're, mm-hmm. uh, if you're eligible. Yes, 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 yes. Cool. Uh, Well, that's all the questions I had. America, do you have any final words of wisdom? Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you so much. Yeah. Oh, I'm so happy. Yeah, just do it, you guys. Just do it. (laughs) You know, it'll suck the first couple of times, but do it anyway. (laughs) And just keep doing it. You know, have no doubt. Have me have the confidence of the mediocre white man. Don't hold back. I feel like that's been kind of the like, the end of every episode that we've had because I don't think we had any white men for this for hire series which was on purpose (laughs) and that has basically been the conclusion is hey if they're going to be like this if they're going to fall asleep in the van in the middle of takes (laughs) then you know what yeah (laughs) yeah it's it's interesting because they say they say that like the more intelligent you are the worse your imposter syndrome is Mm -hmm. which explains why like total mediocre human beings walk around like the cockiest sons of bitches you've ever seen because they're not actually aware of anything that they're doing that's unremarkable yeah imposters don't think that they're imposters no no is that amazing (laughs) yeah it is it's something so hey believe in yourself do good work make a good impression on people yeah Um, be kind always be kind all right well thank you so much Yeah, yeah thank you thanks guys this is awesome Thanks so much to Kelsey Rauber for our theme music, Kaylee Brown for our podcast art, Ezra Lee for editing this episode, and to all of you for listening. Links to learn more about them and our guest are in our episode description. And thank you to our booby VIPs who are our $10 supporters on Patreon, including Kim Garland, Amanda Blunt, Anthony Epp, Kelsey Rauber, Norman Steinberg, Jerry Maravia, and Brandy Nicole Payne. If you want your name on that list and or to have access to our bonus resources related to each and every episode, you can subscribe for as little as $3 to our Patreon at patreon.com slash breakingoutpod. Or join our free newsletter where we share a new creative prompt each month. Next episode, we'll be discussing selling screenplays with special guest Heather Taylor. Be sure to tune in.